Hey, you guys, this is Bill Morris. I'm sure you know me from my many appearances on Star Trek, from the original Star Trek to Deep Space Nine, Voyager, and Star Trek Three: The Search for Spock. And you are listening to Trek Untold. Hello and welcome to Trek Untold, the podcast that goes beyond the stars. I'm your host, Matthew Kaplowitz. A few months ago on this show, we spoke with Iona Morris, who is one of the few people who can say she appeared in the original series, as well as a modern Trek show, with her appearance on Star Trek Voyager. But when we're talking about today's guest, we're discussing an actor who appeared not only in the original series, not only in an original series movie, but also two modern treks with three different appearances in those shows for a total of five generation-spanning Star Trek appearances. That's because our guest today is Iona's brother, Phil Morris. If you're scratching your head at the name and think it sounds familiar, Iona and Phil are both the children of Greg Morris, one of the stars of the original Mission Impossible show. That's how they became connected to Star Trek as children and put them around the business in a pretty big way. Phil is one of those guests who just has so many credits to his name. It's really hard to pick a handful of things to discuss. His career spanned several decades, with his resume picking up steam in 1980. And here in 2020, he's got just under 200 appearances on TV shows and films. You can find Mr. Morris pop up in Knight Rider, The Young and the Restless, Cheers, The Mission Impossible Reboot from 1988, The Fresh Prince of Bel-Air, Melrose Place, Martin, Diagnosis Murder, Terminator of the Sarah Connor Chronicles, Blackish, and of course, who could forget him as Jackie Childs in Seinfeld? But it's not just his face, as his voice has given life to many animated characters in shows and films like Disney's Atlantis, Eddie Murphy's stop-motion series The PJs, Men in Black the Animated Series, Justice League, Danny Phantom, Kim Possible, Black Dynamite, Batman the Brave and the Bold, a bunch of Scooby-Doo cartoons, and most recently in Craig of the Creek on Cartoon Network. Now, as for Star Trek, Phil first appeared in the original series episode Miri with his sister all the way back in 1966. And nearly 20 years later, he returned to the franchise with an appearance in Star Trek III, The Search for Spock. In that film, he acted face-to-face with William Shatner in a very memorable scene. He returned to Trek on Deep Space Nine, first as the Klingon warrior Topak in the fan-favorite episode, looking for Parmok in all the wrong places, and again as a Jem'Hadar, the third Ramada Klon in Rocks and Shoals. Phil made one last appearance as Lieutenant John Kelly in Star Trek Voyager's standout episode, One Small Step. And all of these are really worth giving a rewatch, especially after you hear his memories from filming them. Phil has got a lot of great stories, and we covered a lot of ground in this episode. So get yourself a fresh bowl of gach and listen up. This is going to be a good one. Before we jump into our interview, I want to remind everyone to follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Trek Untold. That's all one word, no spaces. You can also support this show by visiting patreon.com slash trekuntold. If you want to check out some of our merch and put Trek Untold on a shirt, hoodie, mug, sticker, or something else, head on over to teespring.com slash stores slash trekuntold to proudly display how much you like this podcast. And if you do happen to get some Trek Untold merch, go ahead and tag us on social media and let us know you got it. We'd love to see it. 
But most of all, please make sure to subscribe to this podcast and to leave a rating and a review. There is a lot of Star Trek podcasts out there, as I'm sure you already know, and leaving ratings and reviews helps people find us when they're searching for these types of shows. If you're already following us or offering your support in whatever way you can, be it a follow, review, monetarily, or even just listening today, thank you for the help. There's a family of Star Trek podcasts out there, and we appreciate you joining us here each and every week on the show. I'd also like to make a quick shout out to our friends at Triple Fiction Productions, who make some great 3D printed Star Trek inspired products for toys and people. But you'll hear more about them a little bit later on in the show. Now, without further ado, let's beam up this week's guest. Computer, access interview file. Affirmative. Initiating program. And welcome back to Trek Untold. And now joining us on the other side of the line is an actor who has appeared in not one, not two, not three, but four different iterations of Star Trek. And on top of that, he's been in about 200 other things that you're going to recognize him from. We're going to talk about a few of those today. And we're joined today by Mr. Phil Morris. Phil, how's it going today? I'm very well. How are you doing? I'm doing well. Now, we spoke with your sister, Iona, way back in episode five, and I'm hoping that she had some good things to say about me if she mentioned us to you. Uh, if not, anything she said bad was all lies. <laughs> she enjoyed the interview very much. Uh, you know, We speak all the time. I see her and talk to her all the time, and our shared experiences with Star Trek is one of the things that we talk about quite a bit, actually. Oh, wonderful. All right. So let's just jump right on in and... Normally, what we do is we'd ask our guests what their earliest memory of Star Trek is, but in your case, it's a little bit different because basically your first acting, given you were about six or seven, was Star Trek. So uh, how about before right. we get into that, you tell us a little bit about your family and where you grew up. Well, um, my family is, I guess one would consider a bit of a Hollywood family. My father is Greg Morris from the original Mission Impossible series from 66 to 73, and uh my mother is Leona Morris, um, who was just a great mom and a wonderful creative force in our lives. And we grew up in Los Angeles, California, actually in Beverly Hills. We all went to Beverly Hills High School, and the real one, not the one they portrayed on the show. And uh, we had a really good, solid upbringing. My parents were both from kind of solid working class backgrounds. My father's from Columbus, Ohio, Cleveland, Ohio. My mother's from uh, West Virginia. And uh, so they really instilled a, a great grounding and a great family atmosphere. Even though my father was was well known and, and you know quite a legend at the time, uh, we were we were under we understood both parts of that: the fact that he was a groundbreaker and the fact that we were no different than any other person on the planet. And um, those are very very um, good lessons to learn as a as a young person growing up in this crazy town and then deciding to become an actor. It, it all helped me, I think, be grounded. Um, so I'm thankful for all that. Mission Impossible was also produced by Desi Lewis, done in the same studio, basically, as Star Trek was filmed. Uh, so mm -hmm. do you remember ever visiting the set with your dad? Uh, quite a bit. Uh, I, I remember visiting not only the Mission Impossible set, but the Star Trek set. It was right across the breezeway from uh, where the main stage was for Mission Impossible, which, when Desi Lewis sold to Paramount uh, Pictures, then became Paramount Studios. Um, so we would, we being my sisters and myself or any friends that were visiting with me would always go on the Star Trek set and we'd, we'd sit in the Captain Kirk's chair and we'd pick up the paper mache rocks and we'd <laughs> open the doors with the sounds, and, you know, we'd, we'd shoot fake phasers at each other on the, the land, the, the, the kind of space scapes that they had. It was an amazing upbringing, uh, an amazing childhood. You know, it was like Disneyland. You know, the the Brady Bunch was filming there. Odd Couple was filming there. Uh, it was it was a real child's paradise. 
So that first episode that you appeared in, which was essentially uh, your first, if not one of your first gigs, was in the season one episode of Miri, which also has your sister Iona. And you know your sister's mm-hmm. talked in depth about this, but I'd like to hear now your version of things. So um, how did you guys get on the show, and what do you remember about it? Well, it was a bit of a stunt cast, meaning um, they wanted kids on the show as extras, but they didn't want like actory kids who, you know, uh, kind of posed and preened. They just wanted kids. And so who better than actors' kids who understood how to behave on a set were not actors, were just kids playing around and stuff. So I was on the show. My sister Iona was on the show. I believe um, the Landau's kids were Juliet and was on the show. Um, uh, William Shatner's children were on the show. Um, one of the director's kids were on the, was on the show, Tom Grise, uh, Carrie Grise, and John Grise, who became an actor later and was in... Um, um, oh my goodness, what was the name of that film that he was in? Such a good film. Anyway, um, like I said, it was stunt casted. So we were all just these kids that Napoleon Dynamite, I'm so sorry, John Grez was in Napoleon Dynamite. Um, and it was, it was great. I loved it. You know, if you watch this episode and you see when one of the grups, which is what the grownups were called when they got a certain age and they developed a disease, which is why we were in arrested development. All these kids were hundreds of years old. Um, there's a there's a scene where one of the grups kind of escapes in into our classroom into the classroom set and they have all these lesions on them and you know blood and stuff and they didn't tell us they being the producers did not tell us that that was going to happen so when they said action and you see this screaming mimi run through us as kids we were all freaked out and it's <laughs> real freak out time so when you watch that scene if you watch that scene again you'll see that we were all terrified and um and so I remember that. I remember uh, Mr. Shatner being just so wonderful to all the kids and so supportive. And, you know, it was it was it was great. I mean, I remember my first day on the set when you used to get report cards in school. It was always Morris, comma, and then your name. Right. It was your last name first and then a comma and then your first name. So when they asked me my name, they're doing a little roll call. And they're like, OK, and uh, and uh, you, well, who are you? I went Morris, comma, Philip. <laughs> <laughs> oh my god the things the things we do as kids so did you get to pick your own wardrobe for the episode or was that provided to you because all the kids had those crazy little outfits they wore yeah i literally am billed as a boy and count combat helmet yeah. no they gave us those 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 that wardrobe you know we showed up in whatever we were wearing and then they gave us that stuff and uh smudged our face and and mussed our hair if you like me and i own his case and um no that was their wardrobe and so when you guys weren't filming, what was the set like? Were you all just running around playing, or were they trying to kind of corral yeah. everybody? All playing, all playing, all play, all play all the time. I, I remember just a lot of fun. John and Carrie Grise became some of our best friends, and we went on to visit them at their house in Malibu. Um, you know, you have to remember, because these were all kids that we knew. I mean, we knew the Landau's. We knew the Shatner's kids. We knew them. Um, this was a it was like a little posse, you know what I mean, a little crew. <laughs> so um, we fit in really well. And I think that if you watch the episode again, you'll just see kids that are playing. You know, yeah, of course, we have to stop to do a look at Shatner or, you know, Bones or, you know, the, when the, the, the Star Trek crew comes down to visit the planet. Yeah, we have things we have to do as as scripted. But if you really watch it, other than some of the other actors, the younger actors who were professional actors, you just see a bunch of kids running around having a good time. Now, you guys got to do, of course, that scene in the classroom with William Shatner, but also mm-hmm. in this episode is Leonard Nimoy, DeForest Kelly, Majel Barrett, and I'm mm-hmm. sure Gene Roddenberry is somewhere it, around there. Well, um, in, in fact, in that scene, when he's holding up the kid, that's his kid. Yeah, yeah. That's his daughter who he's holding up. 
Did you get to have any interactions or do you remember having any interactions with any other co-stars or, or Gene or anybody else? No, no, not at all. I mean, it, 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 what was I, seven years old at the time? So no, I, I really don't remember that. I remember being completely taken with the woman who played the um, the ensign and she had blonde hair and it was all woven on top of her head. I, I forget what her name was, but I, I was just, just struck by her beauty as a seven-year-old kid, <laughs> one of my very first crushes. And, and of course, Nichelle Nichols, who was a friend of the family, and we knew her, you know, very well. So, um, you know, again, um, I don't remember interactions, say, like with Kim Darby, other than casual stuff or Michael J. Pollard. I had much more interaction with, with Michael later at conventions than then. You know, they were established actors. And, and you know, it was a, you've, if you've ever been on movie sets or TV sets, there's a, there's a separation in, the, in a way. And, um, you know, we were, we were not number two, three on the call sheet. So, you know, we were, we were treated like kids, kids, yes. And, and, and extras in a way. So, um, we kind of cohabited with each other. Do you remember watching that episode when it first aired? Yeah, of course. What did you guys think? How excited were you to see yourselves on TV? Um, very. I mean, I, you know, you look and sound very different to yourself (laughs) when you see yourself on TV or you listen to your voicemail back. Um, and I think that's what I thought. I'm like, wow, I look really goofy. (laughs) I get those (laughs) teeth fixed. But yeah, I mean, I was not a big Trek fan. So seeing that was fun for me to see us on camera and to see my friends. Um, but honestly, it wasn't as thrilling as I think it might have been for some kids because we were, we're, like I said, we we're kind of Hollywood kids. So in between the time from Star Trek, the original series and Star Trek three, did you go to school to pursue acting? Yeah, I, I studied acting for a long time with a man named John Len, L-E-H-N-E. Uh, he was uh, Lee Strasberg's monitor. Uh, in New York, uh, and and was the private coach of Jill Clayburg and John Voight and several other wonderful actors, and and uh, set up shop in in North Hollywood. Uh, and uh, I studied with him for over ten years, and up until the point that he passed away, I studied improv acting with Harvey Lembeck, who was probably most notable for playing Von Zipper in the Beach Blanket movies with uh, Frankie and Annette. Um, I studied, you know, film acting with Tony Barr at Tony Barr's Film Actors Workshop. I mean, yeah, I, I did comprehensive studying with with some of the best acting coaches I could po- possibly find. My very first one was Guy Stockwell, who was the brother of Dean Stockwell, who was who was quite a uh, an iconic actor as well. Um, so yeah, I I, I kind of did my due diligence, man. I needed to know. I couldn't just roll into this because I was Greg Morris's son and had a pretty smile. You know, I had to figure it out and. Um, and those mentors helped me quite a bit. So what would be a lesson that you remember learning back then that's stuck with you today? Don't make the easy choice. <laughs> mm. Don't make the simple choice. Make the one that is interesting to you. Make the one that moves you in a way that um, you can't deny. And and that was a very big note because a lot of times, you know, I'll just speak for myself. You roll into certain certain things and, you know, you just want to get the job. You want it. So you do the thing you think will work, right? You do the thing you think will impress them as opposed to the honest thing, the thing that really is um, a part of you, the thing that really does move you. And, and that takes work. It takes exploration. It takes an understanding and acceptance of yourself. And um, that was a very simple direction or a very simple instruction, but a very valuable one for me. So I try and make the interesting choices. You know, that's why Jackie's so interesting. I think that's why my work now as a more mature actor is better and better and better. You know, I'm challenging myself to explore deeper, 
to dive deeper um, so that we're all interested in not just, I mean, people, people are gravitated. They gravitate towards actors because of how they relate to them. They don't need to know acting technique. They don't know how they get there. They just know that when they're there, they respond to them. And so that's what that note was for me is, you know, be someone who resonates and not just takes up space. That's a very powerful lesson. So through your formative years, and I'm sure later on in his life as well, uh, was your dad offering any advice? Was he volunteering advice or would you come to him for advice? How big was his role in your development as an actor? It went through many different phases. I mean, I think at first it was like, you know, man, don't do this. It's hard. It's, you know, it's difficult. You really have to love it. Don't do it because I'm doing it. You know, because remember, he was one of the first. So he suffered the slings and arrows of outrageous fortune <laughs> um, more than most. And uh, so he and my mother were very much against me being an actor. However, when you have someone who has passion and has a fire lit under them and you know, has seen certain things from the inside, it's best to go along. <laughs> very true, very true. It's best to support because as soon as you start to deny or, or keep them from that passion, they are gonna, they're going to make a beeline to it one way or another. So to their credit, um, my parents were very then supportive when they saw that I was very serious about this, that this was really my calling, this was my passion. Um, born, of course, of the experience of seeing my father and being on set and, you know, being attracted to that life, of course. But um, the decision was mine independently, and, and, and they, were, they were good with it. And then at that point, then my father was very supportive. He was very excited for all of my wins and my successes. And I'm sorry now that he is no longer with me, so I cannot share those things. You know, whenever I go to Paramount Studios, I'm always walking by his old office. And I'm looking up at the office, and I'm like, hey, dude, check it out. We're still here. We're still kicking. We're still doing it, you know. <laughs> Um, and that's the kind of relationship we had after they realized this is what Phil's going to be. And then when I started to become successful, of course, they were very, very proud. So when you got to be in the Mission Impossible remake and you played Barney's son, Grant, uh, what did your dad have to say about that? It was in uh, 88, I think, was when, we, when I got Mission. Um, and my father and I knew that it was happening, but we didn't think that I would be hired because of how close, you know what I mean? I, I, he thought, oh, there's just no way they're going to hire you for this. Um, then when I got it, we were just blown. I mean, we were just flabbergasted that, that I would get it. And, of course, this was a show that was precipitated by a writer's strike. So what I, the part that I actually got was the part that my father had. I actually got the part of Barney Collier in Mission Impossible. That's right. what I was hired to play. But when the um, writer's strike broke, then in their infinite wisdom, they made me the son of that character. <laughs> <laughs> And then my father came down and did three episodes. I mean, he did one episode in the first season and then the two-parter in the second season. So he played with us down in Australia, which is where we shot it. So that must be really interesting to actually be acting side-by-side side with your dad. Uh, very interesting. And you're playing father-son. And this, I, this, again, again, you know, we're talking about I iconic <laughs> franchises. In this iconic franchise that he made famous with my uncle Peter Graves, who I'm also starring in the show with, which is, again, surreal. Um, that they would do Mission Impossible, that I would be an actor, that I would be of an age that, you know, it was just too weird in a way that all that was happening. So it was a beautiful thing, but it was really kind of a dream um, for me and I think for him. Uh, but he was always calling me every week saying, oh, son, you did a great job this week, but our show was better. <laughs> <laughs> our, our version.
version was better. Of course. What are you guys doing? How come you guys did this? How come you did that? You know, yeah, good job, son. But, you know, our show was better. <laughs> <laughs> Dads. So after Trek, uh, your sister, I know she pursued a few other interests in between, you know, basically her next major game, which would be sometime later. But you continue to book a lot more gigs here and there throughout the 70s and early 80s, including an appearance mm-hmm. on Heart to Heart and uh, Mr. Merlin. Mm-hmm. But in 1984, we come back to your next Star Trek appearance, and that's in the third motion picture, The Search for Spock. You played Cadet Foster, who at the start of the movie asks Captain Kirk if they're going to have a hero's welcome. It's a really great scene. It's one of the very, to me, one of the more memorable scenes, in fact, of that film. Uh, It always stands out to me. It's such a real somber moment. Uh, What was it like for you to share the screen with William Shatner now? Oh, it's fantastic. It was even uh, more thrilling to audition for Leonard Nimoy, who directed that episode. Oh, that episode, that that film, <laughs> TV guy, that uh, that 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 um, um, you know what I want to say that that film, and to to audition for him, you know Leonard Nimoy was also on Mission Impossible. He came in after he had finished his stint on Star Trek, and uh, was one of the the crew on Mission Impossible. So we knew him very well, and you know it was like auditioning for your uncle, right? Um, but he was gracious and wonderful and so supportive, and I got the job, which was just mind-boggling and then the first day was the first day of the film for everybody and it was like watching a reunion you know in the makeup trailer everybody was so thrilled to be together again you know and and to be on this adventure and this journey and they were also um excited that this was continuing and who'd have thought you know what i mean it was great to be in there and listening to those conversations like a fly on the wall and when i told them who i was because they didn't know I mean, it had been years, you know, um, since they'd, 10 years easily since they'd seen me, uh, that I was Greg's son. Uh, you know, it was all love. It was all family. And, um, and to do that scene with Mr. Shatner was, you know, iconic. I mean, you're talking to one of the greatest, you're having a scene with one of the greatest television actors, arguably of, of all time. Um, and, uh, the way that scene went and, and how he dealt with it with me, uh, in the scene, was just uh, and and Leonard's direction to me was I remember now as we're talking about it, his direction to me was you know this is like your dad you know you're 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 asking your dad um, about getting a, a, a treat and so if you watch the scene you see in my face it's this wide eyed exuberance you know are we going to get a lollipop <laughs> kind of mm. a thing and um, it's very sweet at a time when you know the captain or the admiral at the time is going through such tragedy. Um, so I remember it vividly, vividly. Yes. Mm, that's a brilliant way of direction, too. I love that line. So this is your first time now actually wearing a Starfleet uniform, and it's those really lovely, uh, very dress kind of uniforms they had in Star Trek II and, and throughout the rest of the original series. How do you like being fit into that costume? Did it fit well? You know, we've talked to people who've been on Next Generation, and they've had mixed feelings about wearing the outfit. Some said it rode up on them. Others were said it was very comfy. Uh, but how are those outfits to wear? You know, I don't recall it being uncomfortable, so I don't think it was. Um, I, you know, I've done so many fittings uh, for Star Trek um, iterations that that one I, I don't quite remember. I remember the other ones much, much more, like the um, the Klingon um, outfit that I wore. But yeah, yeah, I don't recall it being anything other than comfortable for me. I don't remember it being hot or um, or binding in any way. No, not at all. I mean. It, it looked. It felt the way it looked, which was regal. <laughs> yes, absolutely. That's like the one uniform I want to have to wear. It looks great. I liked them a lot, yeah. So there would be a few more years, of course, between your next time appearing in Trek, and since then you went on to do many, many other things. I'd like to talk to you today about a few of those, starting with a role that 
I think it's probably the first time I recognized you growing up as a kid. And, you know, when I looked up that it was you who played this character, I was like, oh my God, it makes perfect sense. But you just completely disappear into the role. Uh, you're going to laugh mm. at this one, I hope. Uh, Jackie Childs from Seinfeld. <laughs> yes, yes. I always laugh when people mention Jackie. Well, thank you. I appreciate that. I I, um, I love Jackie. And I think that, um, you know, too, too, too often we get cast as what we look like, what we sound like, who people think we are. And as actors, sometimes we fall into the trap of... of um, um, samey doing the same thing and um with jackie it was such a departure from some of the things i had been doing i just relished it and you know i felt like i was always kind of a funny guy in real life but i was never very good at comedy on tv or with a script because i was so serious with my approach to my work as a dramatic actor and doing seinfeld and, and some of the things i'd done before that but truly doing seinfeld just popped the top off of my uh my comedic skills and my desire to do comedy um, so I'm really thrilled whenever anybody says that they like Jackie, they love Jackie, or they didn't recognize that it was me, or when I say, or they ask me, you know, well, what are you doing, or whatever, what would I know you from? And I say, well, you ever watch Seinfeld? And they go, yeah, I watch it all the time. And I said, well, you know, I played the lawyer Jackie Chow. I was like, what? You? <laughs> so it's a great compliment to uh, hopefully my craft. And um, working on that show was, I mean, you know, we're talking about iconic stuff here, right? We're talking about the Star Trek uh, franchise, which is iconic as iconic a franchise as there is. And we're talking about the Seinfeld franchise, which is, again, as iconic a franchise as there is. And I've been very fortunate and very blessed to be in those rooms, be a part of that energy, um, contribute in a small way to a very, very large monster. Um, and so I love Jackie, and I miss him, and and I'm always happy to, to play him whenever I can. <laughs> Yeah, Star Trek and Seinfeld are going to be two shows that live on in syndication until the end of time, I believe. So, Totally agree. Yeah. Totally agree. Do you have any memories of working with uh, any of the cast? Because, again, that's such a stellar cast to be working with. Oh, of course, yeah. I have many, many, many memories of... Um, you know, when I first did the show, I did the show, I got cast um, before Jackie as Mayor David Dinkins' press secretary. <laughs> It was during the the very contentious New York mayoral race, and of course Seinfeld was set in New York, and it was the one between um, uh, Dinkins, Dinkins and, and no, not Koch. Um, um, and was it Cuomo? No, oh, not possibly. Cuomo. It might have been, but it, what the, the the episode was basically who liked a certain flavor of yogurt. So we, so they shot they and they didn't know who was going to win the election. So they shot one with me as Dinkins press secretary and one with another actor as the other press secretary and the other guy Dinkins lost. So I didn't get on that episode, but it put me on their radar. And uh, Larry David directed the scene that I was to sh that was going to be placed in the episode. So Larry was familiar with me. So when I went to audition for Seinfeld, they were aware of me, but. Um, it was, again, it was such a different character. Jackie was such a, a high flyer, a high flying act that, uh, when I did the audition, we'll just go right to that. When I did the audition for them, it was a very hot day in the Valley, uh, which is where CBS Radford is. And I'm doing my thing, you know, and I'm doing the, mm -hmm, uh huh. So you, you all need to go with your friends and so what happened, you know, I'm doing my Jackie thing and they're laughing. And so Jerry, he holds it, he's laughing. He holds up his hand and he goes, stop, stop. And, you know, in the middle of my audition, he's telling me to stop. And he goes over to the thermostat and he turns the air conditioning up and he says, you're so funny, man. You're making me sweat. He would go on, <laughs> continue. So then I kind of knew that I had it, you know, and, and uh, my first day on the show, um, you know, you have five days to shoot a, a sitcom. 
So the first thing is a table read. And you do the table read, and boom, then you kind of break to your corners, and you go to, to your scene, and then the director's there, and the, your scene mate's there, and, and you start rehearsing. Well, I was trying to do different things because you know, I had five days to figure this out. You know, I'd never played this character before. It's such an extreme character, very different from me. Jerry is sitting there watching, um, and I'm starting to do different stuff. And he goes, hold on, hold on. And he's not directing. He's just watching. He goes, whoa, whoa, whoa. Again, like they're stopping me in the middle. Are you doing something different? Are you, are you, what are you doing? I said, you, I said, you know, there's five days to do this. I got to figure stuff out. And he goes, no, 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 no. You use those five days to do exactly what you did in my office. That is why you were here. <laughs> I said, all right. Okay, man. I'll, I'll, I can do that. I can do that. So the Jackie that you see is the Jackie that I literally walked in with on the audition, the day that I auditioned Jackie Childs. So I want to talk to you now about one of the favorite non-Trek shows we like to ask about. And uh, your sister was also in an episode of this show as well, and that's Murder, She Wrote. And Murder, you, you were in the episode yeah. of Virtual Murder. And uh, mm-hmm. yeah, I just I love hearing Angela Lansbury stories. So uh, do you have any good uh-huh. memories from working on that show? I think Angela Lansbury was was as nervous in certain scenes as any of the actors were. I mean, this was a woman who took her craft very seriously, as fun as she was, as whimsical as she was, as as uh, Jessica Fletcher. Um, I mean, you know, she and her husband produced this show, so they were also owners of the show. Um, I, I have never been with a, a legend like that that was so down-to-earth and so sweet and so unassuming and um, just brilliant, just a brilliant person to be around and... Uh, that was a really wonderful show. Kevin Sorbo was, was one of the guest stars on that show. Rami Zeta was one of the guest stars on that show. Um, Kate McNeil, um, who I ended up working with on WIOU later. Um, just, it was a wonderful week of work. Uh, just a great episode to be uh, a part of. To And I was the MacGuffin. I wasn't, I wasn't well, not to blow it for anybody, but I wasn't the murderer. But I was the MacGuffin, and and uh, to be a part of a murder mystery like that was great. I hadn't played in that universe before, so that was that was wonderful. Yeah, I've heard just nothing but positive stories about her. I mean, you look at the guest list she gets in every episode, and it's just filled with like either people who were the big names back in the day, or folks who were up and comers, or became, young actors. Yeah, absolutely. And and you wanted you wanted so desperately to. I remember auditioning. I wanted so desperately to get it because it was one of those shows. You knew if you got it, like, man, you're, you're, you're playing with the other people who are going to be in it. It'd be awesome. I, I, Sherman Augustus was in it, who played another actor who's, who's now in Badlands. Um, he played a cop on that. So I just remember so many wonderful people who were in it. Um, and she was terrific. I can't imagine anybody having a, a, a coarse or bad word to say about Angela Lansbury. I just can't imagine it. So what's it like actually sharing the screen with her one-on-one? Because you were in scenes with her, right? Oh yeah, I had a scene just she and I where she I'm I'm putting stuff in my car and I look guilty as heck and and she's like you know well, well what's the real deal here so it was um yeah it's great it was on my reel for years until I finally had to take it off because it was like 20 years old. <laughs> Did you guys like have any rehearsals or any discussions beforehand of what you're going to do or any kind of notes from her? Um no no uh, no I mean she she was another actor you know the, we had a director. He was the one who told us what what. She didn't get into that, you know. She, and that's something that I've learned from from uh, real professional, established actors is that do your job. You know, directors are hired to do their job. Um, if you have anything you want to talk to your other actor about, talk to them. You know, personally about whatever, but but leave the directing to the directors, and that's what she did. And you know, we spoke about you know things of life, but not not about uh, how to play the scene. You know. Uh, 
that was the director's job. Then we came in, we did our best, and, you know, print, move on. So as I mentioned at the start of this interview, you have been in so many, many things, and, uh, you know, we're not going to go through all of them today, but just one other last <laughs> thing I want to touch on before we jump into, again, Trek, was that you were on an episode of The Fresh Prince of Bel-Air back in 93, and I'd love to hear some stories about that, because I don't think I've interviewed anybody yet who has been on The Fresh Prince. <laughs> well, here you go. Um, Fresh Prince. So, um, at the time, of course, uh, Will was, was big. That was a big show. I was a part of a group of actors who wasn't that thrilled that Will Smith had gotten that part because here we are busting our ass, doing the best we can, going to class, you know, doing commercials, doing photo shoots, getting shot down, maybe getting a part. And this dude comes from the rap world. This is when it first started, right? Went from the rap world and snags a plum roll on this ship. What? So I went to the show a little bit with that attitude. And I told Will this, I told him that on the set, on the set. But when I went to the table read, and I heard the fun and the funny. And I saw the relationship between Will and Alfonso Ribeiro. Um, and Will was literally, they were, they were doing something. I'll never forget it. They were working on something. And the thing was, I kid you not, if we say these jokes louder, are they funnier? Hmm. So the whole table read, when they got to their joke, they would just almost yell it. <laughs> and... Um, it was funny because it was so weird and so inappropriate. Um, but I, I, you know, I remember Tyra Banks was on the show, and I was like, "Who is this beautiful young woman?" Oh, you were in the Tyra Banks season. Lucky you. Yeah, she's she was just gorgeous. I had never seen this person before. So you know, she's playing, of course, Will's on and off again love interest girlfriend thing. And uh, um, Will was phenomenal. I mean, really, one of the smartest guys in Hollywood, Will Smith. Uh, he was accepted to MIT. That's how smart this guy is. Every time we had a break, we would go in his room and play chess. And he, he's a good chess player. I mean, I'm a good chess player, but he's a great chess player. So we would play chess. And one day we're playing chess, and he looks at his watch, and he goes, uh, you know, Phil, um, you're going to have to go because I have my advisors coming in, and we have a meeting. I'm going to tell you right now. When he said that, he opened the door, and I saw all his advisors come in. I looked at him. He closed the door, and I'm like, that dude is going to be massive. <laughs> He's going to be massive. And that's exactly what happened. He became huge, obviously. That is one of the most rerun episodes of television I have ever done in my career. Everybody has seen it. Oh, that's awesome. you got to show that just, you know, you keep getting the royalty checks for for many, many years later on. That's, that's got to be a good feeling to have. And just know that you worked in such a fun show, too. Oh, had a great time. Had a great time on that show. Again, that was one of the shows where if you watch that show, I was still in my um, serious mode. Serious, still trying to be the really good looking guy who was serious and blah, 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 boom, boom. You know, I want to go have my own television series and do all that stuff. I was not necessarily that adept at comedy, but doing shows like that helped me because they were so much fun to do. The people who were on the shows, Karen Parsons and, and uh, uh, Tatiana Ali, who I ended up playing her father in a show called Love That Girl years, years later. <laughs> um, they were so welcoming and so fun to be around. It was such a great show. And, uh, you know, it helped. I'm like, man, I love this. This is great. So it, it really helped me understand and find my comedy chops. So I thank them for that. And, you know, we're talking about Tyra Banks here, who is, of course, a amazing actress and uh, trying to find a polite way to dance around saying how hot she is. But. Yeah, I said it. Uh, but 
you also have to have a lot of time with Karen Parsons on screen as her love interest in that episode, right? Or someone who's pursuing her, rather. And she's another gorgeous woman who's a very great actress. I don't think it's talked about enough. What do you remember yeah. about working with Karen? I loved it. And in fact, I, I, we loved working together so much. She ended up doing a show called Lush Life with um, Lori Petty. And she hired me to be her ex-husband in one of the episodes. Um, and uh, unfortunately, I did the episode, but it was right around the time that my father passed away. And uh, they called me, and I was supposed to start that Monday. And they said, you know, if if you don't want to do it, uh, we understand completely. You know, we'll work with you another time, and we'll, we'll just do we'll take the week off. We'll do another episode next week. Boom. And I said, no, my father would hate it if I uh, if I if I didn't work because of him. Um, no, I'm coming in. I'm coming in. And I came in, and I had one of the best weeks of my life there. She's fantastic. Uh, she was one of the producers of the show with Lori, I believe, and. Um, Lori and I are, are still really good friends, and I don't see Karen much at all, but I know she's doing well. And, and um, you know, this is a funny business because you don't get a chance to really connect on a long-term basis with that many people. So it really is uh, dependent on the moments you spend with them when you have the moments that you spend with them, if that makes any sense. Yeah. And um, so that, it's such a transitory business. We go from job to job to job to job, unless you work with these people for five, six years uh, you know, on a show, which is rare, very hard to do. Um, these are the experiences we have. And I've had some really classic, beautiful experiences with some of the most iconic players in our, in our business. And again, I'm eternally grateful. Trek Untold will return momentarily. Trek Untold is brought to you by Triple Fiction Productions. If you're a Star Trek cosplayer looking for props, or toy collector looking to spice up your shelves, Triple Fiction Productions has you covered. Triple Fiction Productions produces affordable and unique 3D-printed Trek-inspired products from the original series, Next Generation, Deep Space Nine, Voyager, Enterprise, and the movies. You can expect the same amount of care and attention to detail in any of the items in their catalog, whether it's a prop replica for use in a fan film, or a part of a cosplay, or accessories and playsets for figures from Playmates, Migos, or Diamond Select. Own your very own tricorder or phaser rifle with working lights, the bridge of the Enterprise E for your Playmates figures, or any other item from countless species and ships from the Star Trek universe. All products are 3D printed in the USA and are constantly evolving and improving based on fan feedback. To learn more about their products, visit them at triple-fictionproductions.net or on Facebook at facebook.com slash triplefictionproductions. Triple Fiction Productions, taking Star Trek where no 3D printer has gone before. What's going on, everybody? It's your girl's favorite artist, Josie's boy. And I'm Alexis A. McCoy. And we are the hosts of Call Me When It's Over. We are more than just a podcast. We are a culture cast. Yes, and you can check us out every single Saturday with a brand new episode. We're available on iTunes, iHeartRadio, Spotify, and Google Play. And you can catch us on our homepage at RagsWorksNetwork.com. And don't forget to follow us on Instagram at underscore Call Me When It's Over. That's right. And as always, speak up, speak out. And leave your ego at the door. We now return to Trek Untold. So, Phil, let's go ahead and warp speed now to 1996, and we're going to talk about your first appearance in Star Trek Deep Space Nine. That's in Season 5, the episode Looking for Parmok in All the Wrong Places. And you got to play <laughs> the Klingon warrior Topak. So, back yeah. when you first auditioned for this role, did you know you were auditioning to be a Klingon? Yes, I did. I was aware. And, um, and I believe Andrew Robinson was the director yes. of the episode. And, uh, 
And so my, my goal was to scare him. <laughs> my goal was to to shock him. You know, again, remember we were talking about, you know, make the interesting choices. Yeah. Um, so that was my de- that was my desire. I mean, I knew my lines. I knew the dialogue. I knew all that stuff. But so did everybody else, right? Everybody else knew the dialogue. They knew the lines. They had all. But what was going to get me over? What was the engine? What was my motivation? My motivation was to scare him. You know, this guy was a bad enough Klingon that he gets kicked out of the Klingon Federation at the end. That's how horrible he is. He's so bad, Klingons don't even want him. So I had to do something. So when I went into the room and I did my stuff, I literally didn't even look at the casting director who's reading the dialogue as Quark or whoever I was, I was supposed to be acting opposite. I literally threw every bit of line and dialogue to Andrew Robinson. I don't know if he remembers it. But he was like on the edge. His eyes were like bugging out, and he was on the edge of his seat, like I was going to attack him. And um, and I got it, you know, I got it. So, you know, I guess there is something to that note about you know making the the interesting choice. But what I what I really remember about that are two things. One was the wardrobe was with the the costume uh, fitting, which is what we were talking about for the other show, the other uh, episode. But this I do remember vividly. Because those are such binding costumes. They're oh, so yeah. overlaid with leather and, you know, so much brocading. And, oh, my God, it was it was almost unbearable. And then the head cast that I had to do for all of the facial prosthetics, right? And the teeth. They give you Klingon teeth, right? So they do a, a, a casting of your mouth as well. And then they, they make a bridge for you of Klingon teeth. Oh, wow. Custom <laughs> so, Klingon teeth. It's custom Klingon teeth, which they keep. You don't keep anything. They keep it all. Which is so um, bizarre, because it's like, are they going to reuse that for someone else? Like, what are they doing with it? Well, they probably have a, a history, a museum of Klingon stuff. You know what I mean? Why not? <laughs> um, but what I do, the, the, most, the most fun thing that I did on that show was they gave me an actual batleth to bring home. Oh, wow. To work with. Uh, actual heavy-ass pointy, nasty bat left that I, I, uh, I brought home to work on the choreography that they showed me. So I take this bat left out. I live at the beach. I take it out to the lifeguard station and I wish I had a footage of me working this thing, man. I was a ninja <laughs> with this bad boy. And, uh, I, I, I learned to use it so well. I don't believe they use the double other than when I was getting hit. Right. Yeah. So, I was really proud of that. I was really, really proud of that. And um, again, it was a, a wonderful experience. And Armin Shimmerman and I are really good friends. I don't see him all the time again, but we had the same voiceover agent. I'd see him quite a bit at the office, and uh, we talked about that all the time. And uh, one of my favorite uh, convention photos is a picture of me as Thopak, um leaning over Quark, just spewing the most horrible, vile things at him. Um, it's so much fun. <laughs> yeah, I'm glad that you mentioned that it was just you guys doing that battle because as I was watching the episode recently, I was like, man, where's the double? I was trying to look for him and it was just you guys. So that was very impressive. Yeah. Uh, yep. So yeah, yeah. I'd like, like to hear a little bit more actually about working with Armin because we've had other guests who've worked with him in scenes on DS9 and they've described him as being like a very reactive actor, very open actor. Uh, how would you describe working with him? Armin is, is um, he's very present. You know, he's there. You look at him, he, he looks back. He, he is unpredictable. He's a bit of a live wire, right? Um, he, he, and I think that's the choice he made for Quark. You know, Quark is a bit like um, a cricket on a hot stove, right? Um, he's bouncing all over the place, trying to sell. He's a hustler. He's, he's that guy. Um, 
And that's how Armin played him. Armin is far more uh, intellectual, obviously, far more cerebral. He is a, a Shakespearean savant um, as a as an actor, as a as a craftsperson. Um, but in the scenes, he was just couldn't be better. It was so again fun. I guess fun is the watchword for me <laughs> in all of this because that is what I aspired to have as a child. That's what I thought. I wanted, I did not want to work in a nine to five office. I did not want to work in a job where I couldn't play, where I was working to then go play. I wanted to play while I worked. And I, and I realized that that's exactly what I've created. Everything we've been talking about, everything that I do, all that I am is about working to play. And it has been incredibly successful. So working with people like Armin, who just plays and is a great playmate, um, I can't get enough, man. It's great. That's a great way to put it. Now, uh, by the way, was this role your first time doing heavy prosthetics for a role? No. Do you remember um, what the first one was? Well, heavy makeup was Young and the Restless. I played a white guy. <laughs> That's pretty heavy. Uh, oh, very heavy. Uh, with a fake wig and a heavy, heavy eyebrow makeup, makeup every. I mean, it was the makeup wasn't prosthetic, but it was as thick as you could make it without it being prosthetic. Um, I did that for, uh, must've been months. <laughs> it felt like years, but months on the show. Um, I did a head cast for mission impossible, but that was a little bit after I did that. Perhaps that was the first time on my face prosthetics, but on my body, I've had scars and bullet holes and stab wounds and stuff like that. But yeah, probably the first time I'd had a facial prosthetic and then I did it. Well, we'll I'm sure we'll talk about it, but, um, Yes. Yeah, we'll get to, we'll get to the Jemadar in a moment, but uh, yeah, I was just curious, you know, <laughs> this being your first time wearing all of this kind of seriously heavy-duty uh, facial prosthetics as opposed to just like heavy makeup, uh, did it affect your acting in any way? I mean, from my point of view, of it didn't, but yeah, I'm just curious what it is from your perspective. Of course, of course. It's, 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 uh, you're, you, you, you don't have to guess who your character is. You know, you look in the mirror, you know who it is. You feel your forehead, you feel the ridges, you know what it is. You know, you, 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 you touch your teeth, you know what's going on. Um you, you, you wear the wardrobe, it all lends to the reality, the given reality we're trying to present, right? And the more aids you have like that, the better. Um, I, I love it. I rely on it. I, I, lean, I don't rely on it. I lean into it. I lean into the characters because you are being given such great assistance with these amazing makeup artists and these amazing costume costumers and stunt people and special effects people that are there to help make the illusion real. Um, yes, it's a fantastic way to play because you can't escape your character. You can't just get out of your wardrobe. You know, you got to take the whole thing off. That takes hours. So you're in it to win it, man. And so we mentioned this episode was directed by Andrew Robinson, who we all know as Garrick. We all know and love him as Garrick, of course. Uh, mm -hmm. And this was also the first episode of Star Trek he had directed, but not his first time directing anything ever. But uh, how would you describe the way that Andrew directed? He's very energetic. He's got a great energy. And you need it. You need, especially with an episode like uh, Looking for Parmok. Because if you realize or remember, um, almost everybody's in that episode. I, I mean, every cast member is in that episode having some sort of uh, romantic entanglement of one uh, sort of another or another. And so your mind has to be quite agile. 
as a director to compartmentalize and make sure everything's straight and up to date and you're giving everybody the right amount of motivation, not too much, not too little, the right amount of comedic you know, tension for Armin and myself, the right amount of to me. <laughs> and um, I found him to be incredibly supportive. He was so excited that I'd come back and, and had all those moves because it made our shooting day quicker, right? You don't have to just like take me out, put in the stunt guy. All right, cut. Phil, uh, stand there, close up. You know, you could do it all in one take. So um, he was really excited about that. And I think he was really excited about, about directing the episode, you know? Um, and I, I found it to be terrific. I didn't, did I know it was his first episode? I think I knew intellectually it was his first episode uh, of, of Star Trek directing that, but it didn't. It didn't show. It didn't. I didn't feel it. Yeah, he he was just as uh, accomplished as any other director I'd worked with. So, and, and we brought him so much. I mean, um, the characters were so full. I mean, Joseph Rusk was in it, and um, the lady who who played Grilka was fantastic. I mean. They're all such good actors. You know, you, you almost have to get out of the way as a director. You know, you're working with Armin Shimmerman. I mean, you don't want to get in that guy's way. You know, and then I was bringing so much as Thopak that he just was like, all right, and action. <laughs> <You know>? <laughs> <laughs> now, most important question about this role you had as Topak: Did you get to keep that Batleth that you were training with? Oh, no. Like I said, they keep everything. Oh, that's disappointing. Yeah, so I might be able to get one from a convention, but I'll have to pay for it. Yeah, because I imagine you can't easily sneak a Batleth off the set. So, yeah, that's unfortunate. <laughs> yeah, it's very tough. So you returned again to D-Space Nine one season later, this time as a Jem'Hadar soldier, the third Ramada Klon, from the episode Rocks and Shoals. Very good episode. Uh, how did you get called back for this one? Did they just decide that, hey, Phil was a good Klingon. I bet he'll be a good Jem'Hadar, too. Yeah, uh, I guess so, yeah. They, they they remember me, of course, from that role. Uh, third Ramataclan was a much bigger role than Fopak uh, was. And so I auditioned for this again. And uh, what was told to me in the auditioning room was the Klingons think that they're the baddest dudes in the universe. The Jem'Hadar actually are. So um, they said, you know, they don't, they don't have to spew. They don't have to externalize their, they know who they are. They're born this way. It is the nature of things. Right. Um, so I just, if you watch it, it's a very quiet performance. You know, it's a very contained performance, like 180 degrees antithetical to Thopak. Um, and, and I think that was the power of it. Right. It's a very tragic character. You yeah. know, um, He's never going to rise through the ranks because his first and second are dead. And um, the Vorta is a traitor. So, I, I mean, it was a terrific episode. Each episode has its own dynamics, right? Each, each character has their own dynamics. And to work with this um, character with a, opposite Avery Brooks. <clears throat> now, we've talked about Angela Lansbury and Armin Shimmerman and my father and William Shatner. And again, I'm one of the luckiest guys on the planet. You know, I've had a chance to work with some of the greatest characters, the greatest character actors um, that my industry has. So working with, with Avery um, taught me a lot. Working with him uh, in that cave, these two resonant voices, um, was a special moment, I think, not just for me, but for everybody who witnessed that scene. And... Uh, um, it was another, another great memory. Another great memory. 
So which was more difficult for you to wear, the Klingon makeup or the Jim Hadar gear? Jim Hadar, no doubt. What was more no worse about that one? Is it more and, constricting? Yeah, it's a it's a complete head thing, man. Um, with the Klingon, you're wearing a bit of a wig and then a, a skull thing. You got an you got a ridge nose and teeth. Um, with the Jemadar, it's your whole head, all the way down to your neck, and then the brocaded leather uh, is much more intense and much more. Uh, um, it doesn't breathe at all. That's what I want to say. Uh, and we were shooting in Sun Valley, <laughs> California, on one of the hottest days ever recorded in a rock quarry that was all white. <laughs> oh. oh, yeah, yeah. We've we've heard a similar story from uh, Caitlin Hopkins, actually, back in our debut episode. She was also in a DS9 episode as a Vorta with a bunch of Jemadar guys. And uh, same thing, they were doing the outdoor shoot, and she just said she was in the middle of a scene. All of a sudden, Jim Hadar guy just dropped from dehydration and passed out. Yeah, our stunt coordinator, who's supposed to be the toughest guy on the set, <laughs> our stunt coordinator had to be uh, given an IV. Oh wow! So, yeah, it was. It's it's a, you know it's grueling. Doing these shows is hard. It is so hard. So if you love them, honor them for the work that they put in and how difficult these challenges are. Uh, the, the working hours are intolerable. Just about. I mean, they're working. You, 12 hour days are easy. You're talking about 16 hour days, man. And then you're flipping the script to a night shoot and you're having to wear these outfits. And, you know, Michael Dorn and that for years, you know, I mean, these are, these are warriors, these people who are doing these shows, you know, I'm, I'm honored to work with them. So Avery Brooks is easily my favorite captain in Star Trek history as Captain Sisko. What was it like to work with Avery? I've heard that he's very professional. He really very much embodies the role of a captain, an authority-style figure. Avery and I got along great. Um, I've, I've heard so many stories about Avery, you know, some good, some not so good. Um, I get it. I get it. I get it, man. It is tough. Like I just said, this work is hard. He is a consummate actor. You know, he's incredibly well-trained. Um, he was a big fan of my father's. So he and I got along great. My father was one of his idols. He was one of the people who helped him decide that he wanted to be an actor. So we have a very special relationship. And whenever I see him anywhere, it's it's all love. You know, we're family. Um, he he again uh, in the scene. Um, we are adversaries, but we're equals, and. When you come into a show as a guest star uh, that is established, that is a Star Trek offshoot, and you're working with the number one on the call sheet, right? Uh, it can be daunting because you're the new kid at school. You're not even a kid at school. You're just a you're a foreign exchange student. You're leaving <laughs> at the end of the week. So, you know, I've been treated so many different ways by so many different people, but people like Avery treat you with respect. They treat you with honor. If you have the skill that makes them respect you, they will treat you as an equal. And that's exactly how he was on the set. He was as professional as any actor I've ever been across, I've ever run across, as talented, as present. And we, we killed that scene. I love that scene. And um, I have only beautiful things to say about him. He made me better in the scene because of his power and his range and his grounding, you know, um, 
can work with that guy anytime. And this episode was directed by Michael Vajar, uh, who I thought just did an amazing job as well. Such a very complex episode. I, I enjoyed a lot of the choices he made visually. And uh, I'd like to hear, you know, working with him as an actor to director kind of relationship, uh, how was he? Mike Vehar had done an episode or two of Mission Impossible down in Australia. That's how I knew him. Oh, okay. So you already had a connection um, with him. I already had a connection with him. Um, I actually worked with his cousin, Rudy Vehar on Young and the Restless back in the day. So, you know, these connections are very, very tight. You know, it, is six, it literally is six degrees of, of Kevin Bacon. Um, Mike, Mike is a workmanlike director is what I would say. I don't know if he'd, he'd appreciate that or not. But he is a workmanlike director. He, you know, there's a lot of moving parts on a Star Trek episode. There's a lot of um, technological stuff. There's a lot of um, gobbledygook dialogue that that actors have to spout and and recite. Um, and so you can get caught up in all that stuff, or you can make it work for you. And Michael made it work for him. And you know, it was a very uh, again workmanlike set. Uh, there isn't any one bit of direction that I can recall from him uh, that stuck in my head. And sometimes that's good because again, in TV, a director doesn't want to insert himself and, and it's like a ref in an NBA game or a ref in an NFL game. You don't want to notice them, right? You, you, you want them to be there to make sure the game goes well and make sure that um, the players play at their optimum uh, level, but you don't really want them to be, uh, obtrusive and Michael never was. And, um, I mean, that's like, I guess what I, what I have to say about him, we can talk about other people who are far more impactful, but, uh, you know, Mike is that kind of guy, you know, yeah, do your thing. I'll be over here at Beaver village. You need me. You let me know. So finally, your last Star Trek appearance was in season six of Star Trek Voyager, where you played Lieutenant John Kelly, a NASA, a NASA astronaut, who's also a childhood hero of Chakotay, uh, and you're basically a little bit more closer to our contemporary times. You're in Voyager now. How did you get called back for this time around to be actually showing your face and not just be covered up? Uh, I don't recall this audition, to be honest with you. I don't I, I don't know if I auditioned for this. I think I was given this role. It was written by Brandon Braga. Um and I think Brannon wanted me for it. I cannot remember specifically. Here's what I remember. One of the best episodes of television I've ever been a part of. Yeah, it's a really beautiful episode. I got to say, like, you know, I, I used to watch this one. And I remember the first time seeing it, like, I was like, eh, this isn't that interesting. But then as it goes along, your performance is just a real amazing knockout piece. Uh, thank you. I, um, I work with Robert Picardo uh, as a director on that. And Robert and I uh, were both students of John Lynn, the acting coach I just mentioned, I mentioned before. So um, Robert and I were very familiar with each other, and we were familiar with our process. So, so now when you ask me about what was it like to work with a director, I'm going to jump ahead and get to that. Because, like I said, you work with some directors, and sometimes they resonate with you, and they, they, they show up, and sometimes they just don't for whatever reason. It's not their fault. It's just the nature of the experience, right? Um, but Bobby was, I'm so sorry about this tree trimmer who just showed up at my house as well. Um, <laughs> That's why you need a bat lift. <laughs> Bobby and I um, worked terrifically together. I had no one to work with in that episode. As you know, I was all by myself. And so the person that I worked with was Bob Picardo. His direction was so nuanced. His direction was so um, humane. 
Because remember, in this episode, it's Seven of Nine who needs to figure out why she's clueless as to why human beings are so tied to their history. So Janeway tasks her with going through my log to understand, because I'm that linchpin between the Federation and NASA, right? <clears throat> I'm the first one to ever see alien technology, alien ships. No one knows it because I'm in this spatial anomaly, and I'm the only one who does. So, so when they find this, they then find out what happened to me, and uh, Seven of Nine is the one tasked with that. So that's an incredibly human um, uh, road to be traveling down, and to have someone like Bob Picardo, who was also on the show, of course, as the doctor, direct it, was perfect, because he is one of the sweetest, kindest, nicest, most talented people I've ever been around in my life. I've seen him do things in class that just absolutely destroyed me. Um, so to work with him was a joy. One night we are, um, and I'll try and get through this without, <clears throat> late, early in the morning, and there's no one there. And he and I are rapping, and our cars happen to be parking, parked next to each other in, in the, um, the water tank, which is where you park uh, on the Paramount lot. And it's maybe 2 in the morning. And he and I kind of show up at our cars from opposite ends of the studio. And, and he comes over to me, and he puts his hands on my shoulders, and he says, You have embodied every lesson that our acting coach ever taught us. And I'm so proud of you. And as you can hear, one of the greatest compliments I've ever been given by anybody in my life. And uh, so that episode is really special for me, and so is Bob Picardo. Uh, I've got a tear in my eye too right now, so thank you very much for sharing that one. Yeah, yeah, my pleasure. So towards the end of this episode also, your character has a monologue about his father, and I'm wondering, you know, as you were filming that scene, were you thinking about your father, who I believe had just passed away uh, maybe a year or two before that? Yeah, of course. Yeah, of course. It's, um, yeah, again, right? We're using things that move us as actors. We're trying to, we're trying to blur the line between the thing that we all know is not real, right? And the reality of our emotional life. So, yeah, you use the things that are closest to you, that you are, are most familiar with and um so of course my relationship with my father was the thing that i that i knew best and no acting involved right so was it tough to kind of have this monologue with essentially you know you talking to your dad was it was it actually tough to get through that one um not that i can recall no no there were other things that were that were a little more t a little tougher um but not that 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 in itself was uh Actually, you know, I, as I recall, was a little joyous, you know, inside for me. Um, I forget how Kelly felt about it, but for me, it was like, man, I'm giving my dad a chance to give him a little honor here, give him his, give him his due. And then I was doing Star Trek on the Paramount lot, where I was seven years old doing that episode, where I grew up, learning about the business. It was perfect, right? Oh, yeah. It's, it's a great role to have. It's a beautiful episode. Highly recommend that one. Uh, so was this your favorite Trek appearance? I think so. I think so. I say I think so because there are so many that are fantastic, right? I mean, Star Trek Three was fantastic. That's, um, but this eclipses it because of who the character John Kelly was, um, 
as I explained, working with Robert Picardo, um, <clears throat> playing myself <laughs> uh, again uh, in, uh, in a Star Trek um, franchise piece, uh, and, and what the episode meant, the humanity. Every single episode of Star Trek is a morality play. It just is. It has to do with morals and, and personal integrity, and uh, if you distill it, you'll see that all of that exists in every single episode of whatever franchise uh, or, or um, offshoot of, of Star Trek there is. So the level of humanity in that episode is so great. It's so deep. Yes, yes, it is my favorite one of all. Yeah, I recommend it for anybody listening. If you want to go have a good cry, go watch that episode right now. <laughs> it's a great, great episode. <laughs> so they say in Star Trek, the kiss of death for an actor is the minute you show your actual human face. And you're an actor who's eluded that twice because, again, your first two appearances, it was you not wearing any makeup. But uh, unfortunately here, this Voyager episode is your final appearance in the Trek world. But were you ever called back to audition for any other roles in any other Trek shows? No, no, no. And, uh, you know, I, I've worked with... Um, Eugene Roddenberry, uh, um, Rod Roddenberry, uh, the son of Gene Roddenberry. Uh, and I told him, you know, look, man, I'm ready to come back. I'm ready to do it. Let's do it. Come on now. Bring me on to Enterprise or whatever, whatever's out there right now. I'm, I'm, I'm your man. I have not heard from them, but um, that's fine. I'm, I'm very busy. <laughs> well, we need to get you and your sister back as Klingons in Discovery or something. That's what we'll do. I would love it. I would love it. So now me being the mega giant nerd that I am, you know, we've, we don't have time to talk about every single one of these, of course, today. But in addition to all your time in Trek, you've been in many other geeky franchises, including the Terminator Sarah Connor Chronicles, where you played Miles Dyson. You've been Dr. Sweet in Disney's Atlantis. You've been in Smallville as Martian Manhunter. And you have done a ton of voiceover work, uh, a lot of times with DC and Marvel characters. Uh, but the one I'd like to hear about is Vandal Savage from Justice League. So uh, how did you get the voice? How did you find that voice for Vandal Savage? To me, Vandal Savage is a smooth criminal, right? He's an immortal. It. He's almost bored with himself in a way. And so he determines that he's going to conquer the world today, right? He wakes up. He's like, what am I going to do? I'm going to just try to rule the world, I guess. <laughs> yeah, again. And um, as I thought about him in that in those terms, that voice the voice came to me. You know, this really poetic, lyrical, almost uh, intoxicating voice that um, you would develop over millennia. Right? You you couldn't be excited about everything any all the time. You probably weren't wouldn't be excited about anything again. And so there's a certain jaundiced view of the world of the universe that he that he has. Um, and I hope that that's what the vocal quality uh, I gave him registered as. You know, it's this, ah, yes, once again, I must rule the world. <laughs> you know, it's, he's, and who does that other than a guy who can't be killed and is going to live forever? And I mean, what other projects are you going to, I mean, you're not going to knit. <laughs> so, <laughs> so why not? Uh, that's how I came up with the voice, really, honestly. I, you know, I'm a comic book fan. I have 20,000 comic books. Oh, truly. now you got to tell me about that. Um, yeah, so, I mean, I have the same comics that I, I, I bought in 1966 when I was seven. Oh, wow. Uh, in a Cleveland drugstore, you know, Captain America and Iron Man. I got them in my collection. So all this stuff that we're talking about, whether it's DC Universe stuff or Klingon Star Trek stuff or even Star Wars stuff or 
any of these things that are fantastical, um, I have loved it my whole life. I have, I have literally been a fan of this my whole life. And I'm given, given an opportunity to express that fandom in the most unique way. Um, my comic book collection has been paid for several times over from the work I've done in the comic book world. My mother would just be blown away <laughs> right now about all that stuff. Uh, so, yeah, that's, I mean, I know Vandal Savage. I know these characters. You know, I know Superman. I know Batman. I know Martian Manhunter. I know these characters. I know Miles Dyson. I know them. Um, I love them. I'm a fan of, that, of theirs. So when I'm asked to audition or play these characters, I figure I have a leg up more than the other actor who's going to go in the room because I know that I've been a fan of these things since I was a child and will continue to be. So I got to ask then, what is the grail piece in your collection right now? When you have 20,000, it's <laughs> hard to have one. Can't just choose one kid. <laughs> um, I have a couple 1948 Captain Americas. Ah. I have every single issue of the original Silver Surfer, 1 through 18. Um, I have... Fantastic Four, five through one hundred. I have uh, what V for Vendetta, the original Alan Moore printing. I have uh, what else? I have I got a bunch of stuff, man. Um, Daredevil two through fifty. I don't have one. Um, what's the but? But my favorite ones are the ones like the I have a signed Jack Kirby uh, collection or assigned Frank Miller, Sin City, original volume one. Uh, that stuff, I like that stuff. That stuff where I have a lot of Neil Adams signed Green, Green Lantern, Green Arrow stuff. Oh yeah, Neil's great. Um, he's just fantastic. Uh, what else, what else, what else, what else? What are you else? a guy that gets your stuff graded, or do you leave things the way they are? I have it all um, compiled and alphabetized and uh, numerolo- numerologically uh, put together, and I have it in a, a database, but I, I haven't had it uh, appraised at all. You're such a nerd. I'm like, this is really awesome now. I didn't know that beforehand. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm into it. I'm into it. I, I don't read them as much now as I used to, of course, but, <clears throat> but but like I'm doing a job now that I just got, I can't talk about, but I just got it. And uh, it's very intense and it's very uh, complex. And I remember most of it. But what I actually did was I went right to my library and I pulled out the issues that I needed to look at in order to fill in the gaps in my memory. And I was like, oh, yeah, I get this. I know what this universe is. <laughs> you know, so I've got the best reference library in the world for that. All right. Well, I'm hoping you can talk about this role because most recently you're now in DC's Doom Patrol TV series. You're playing uh, Cyborg's dad. Silas Stone. Yeah, Silas yeah. Stone. So, uh, yeah, Doom Patrol is a bizarre, unique show. I've just started watching it recently and I'm, I'm pretty into it. Uh, how do you like being on Doom Patrol right now? It's one of my, you know, I keep saying this, it seems like, um, it's one of the best shows I've ever done. Again, it's, it's, it's one of the, the most, uh, God, what do I want to say? It's so dimensional. It's got so much going on. It's so well shot. It's so well acted. The special effects are out of control. Um, the the the, the 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 I I love Silas Stone I love Vic Stone I love and hate their relationship it's so dysfunctional. Um, Diane Guerrero is brilliant. April Bowlby is incandescent. Timothy Dalton's a great great scene mate. Um, and then you got you know the people like Matt Zuck who plays um, Mr. Negative the Negative Man. Uh, in the bandages. I mean, these are the guys who actually do it in the suit. And then you have a guy named Riley Shanahan, 
who plays Robot Man in the suit on stage. And then you have the voices of Matt Bomer, who voices Negative Man, uh, and then Brendan Fraser, who voices Robot Man. It's an incredibly diverse and dense show. I love it. And I want to play Silas Stone a lot more. I want him to, to bring me back a lot more. I, I dig it. Yeah, it's a really, really interesting show. Very unique. Uh, but before we wrap this interview up today, there is one other role. You know, Again, of the nearly 200 you've had, there's just one other bizarre role I've got to ask about. Jingle all the way, Gale Force. <laughs> That's all I have to say to you. You know where I'm going. The weatherman. <laughs> What's the question? <laughs> there is no question. I'm just saying, Gale Force, jingle all the way. What... What do you got for me, Phil? (laughs) (laughs) Gale Force. Gale Force was uh, one of the two hosts of the parade that is in the movie Jingle All the Way. Um, I was cast in it by a guy named Brian Levant, who was the director, who is one of the most fun guys I know. Brian is a volleyball fanatic. And so I live in Manhattan Beach. I'm literally looking out at my, my beach right now with volleyball courts everywhere with nobody playing because of the time that we're living in. But um, I got Jingle All the Way. We're shooting a Jingle All the Way. We're, 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 we're not even close to getting to our close-ups. We're weeks away. They're shooting Arnold down in the, the parade route. Da, 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 da. The second day or third day, the, direct, the, the, AD, the, the AD goes, or the PR, PA goes, the director wants to see you. What? Wants to see me? For what? I mean, I'm not even on camera. You know, you got to go now. You got to go now. It's lunchtime. You got to go now. Okay, uh, all right. So they put me in a, they have a golf cart there for me. Put me in the golf cart. I go to New York Street, a Universal, which is to- totally, you know, decked out in, you know, winter gear and Christmas stuff and there on Main Street on the street is the director with the head cameraman and a couple other assistant camera guys and they're bumping the volleyball. <laughs> I'm in a full suit and and he's like, "Come on, let's bump the ball. I heard you play." I'm like, "What?" I heard you play. Okay, so I take my jacket off. I'm bumping the ball here. They're like, wow, you're good. I'm like, yeah. So they, lunch is over, and we're still bumping. And all these, we had 2,000 extras. 2,000 extras on New York Street at Universal waiting for us to finish peppering the ball to shoot. <laughs> and so every day at lunch, we would pepper and bump and do things. I become like great friends with Brian Levan. I play volleyball tournaments at his house all the time. It's so wild. And Arnold couldn't have been nicer. He was such a cool dude. He came over to my, my uh, castmate and I and, and just was so lovely on our last day and told him, told us that he'd noticed us and how funny we were in dailies. And he was great, man. It's, it's again, it's killer experience. Gale Force. So <laughs> stupid. <laughs> so, Phil, best experience and worst experience on a movie set or a TV show set? Uh, best is very hard. Um, best, best. Okay, I guess this one, right? Here's one. Okay, uh, it's the rap party of the Love Boat, the new Love Boat, the love next, boat, the next wave. generation. Yeah, the next wave, produced by Aaron Spelling, right? So it's the rap party, and Robert Urich is introducing all the cast members to the people who are at the the party and. You know, he goes to introduce me, and Aaron says, no, I want to do this one. So he grabs the mic. Aaron Spelling grabs the microphone from Robert Urich, and he starts saying, you know, sometimes an actor comes across your plate, and 
they can just do it all. They can do drama, and they can do comedy, and they're handsome, and they're smart. I hate this guy. And everybody starts laughing. And he says, one of the most talented actors I've ever worked with, you guys know him, Phil Morris. Aaron Spelling. That was wonderful. That was seminal, uh, memorable, right? Um, the worst is easy. <laughs> but I can't use names because they're big stars. So I'm, I'm working on this movie, and I had just finished j an episode of JAG, uh, which was a military show, and it was one of, another great episode for me. I was with a guest, major guest star, just so terrific. So I leave that show, and I go to this movie the next week, and I'm working with these actors, and they're big-time actors. One of the reasons I did the movie was because they were big actors. The director's a big-time director. And here I am, and I'm working with them, and I, it's my first day on the show – on the movie. I'm in a makeup trailer and the makeup artist is the same makeup artist who used to do me for Young and the Restless. The guy, same guy who made me into a white guy on Young and the So fantastic. So I'm, uh, I'm sitting next to two of the stars of this movie and he introduces me to the two stars and they say, you know, whatever. And they go back to their conversation. So on the set, we're shooting this scene and it was on a plane and it's using, they're using what's called a gimbal which is a, a, a rig that actually makes you look like you're in a plane and it's moving and it's you know being buffeted or whatever. So it was hot in the valley and, and um, the two principals are in the main cabin and I'm supposed to come in during this storm and tell them it's a lightning storm and it's going to be okay. The captain says it's going to be fine. Don't worry about it. And then I'm blown out, right? And really, I just had like two pops of that. That's really all I have to do. Three days on this movie but I did it because these are big stars and I wanted to be in their presence. Well, these two stars couldn't have been bigger fill in the blanks. <laughs> they were just terrible. They were, they couldn't get their lines right. It took 10, 12 takes just to get their lines out. We're doing this time, time and time again. I'm coming in the cabin, doing my thing, getting up, blah, blah. All right. So the director tells the operators of the gimbal to, kick up the gimbal a little bit it's not it's not not bucking enough it's not kicking up enough all right so they do well i had to it was so hot that there was an air conditioning vent that i had to literally hold on them because there's no room for me in the cabin and then when they when they start to count down i have to take this vent out hold the door closed because it wouldn't close with my foot so i'm literally surfing on this thing waiting to hear my cue to go into the cabin well, I hear my cue, I open the thing, the gimbal again bucks, I shoot into the room and I give my line. Boom, all right, cut. Director comes in, oh, that was great, that was great. Did you guys feel it? It was wonderful. It was good, it was great, right? And so this one actor, major, iconic, legendary actor, looks at the director and he says, no, I didn't like it. I thought that the co-pilot, my character, looked scared. And the director didn't see it at all. He looks up at me and says, hey, man, whatever's scaring you, don't be. I'm like, I'm not, I'm not. Okay, let's do it again. Okay, so we do this thing again, right? And I just keep getting the stink eye from these two actors that are like legendary actors. The only reason I took it was for, the, for them. Jeez. And they couldn't have been worse to me. And then that's not even the worst. The worst part was I was up for a pilot directed by my friend Brian Levant, who I worked with in that movie. And it's between me and another guy for this pilot. 
And I have to go that night to read off against this guy. But I'm stuck on this movie set with these two. And so I lose it. I lose that. I lose the pilot. And I've spent three days on a movie that they cut me out of. And I have these horrible stories of these actors that I can't even use their names because they're such big actors. that I don't want people to think, you know, if they may have a different experience with them and that might have just been my experience and whatever. But, you know, I couldn't have been treated worse. I felt like they felt like they were number one and two on the call sheet and everybody else was beneath them. It was just a bad, bad, left a bad taste in my mouth. So, Phil, you're a guy who's been in, as we mentioned throughout this show, just about 200 shows and films. It's an impressive resume, just so many great things you've been in. Uh, what is the key to your success and longevity in this business? Uh, I think um, play. <laughs> keep playing. Keep playing. Keep playing. Keep playing. It's called a play. It's called a teleplay. It's called a screenplay. And we take it so seriously sometimes. You know, we want to make the money. We want to get that profile. We want to be a star. I don't even know what that means. Um, we forget that um, it's about enjoying ourselves. I think you've seen and heard in me in this interview. I mean, I've laughed. I've, I've literally, I've almost cried, literally. Um, and I keep myself alive. I keep myself open to all experiences, to the journey. I live my life as full as I can, and I take that to my work. I don't live my life as an actor. I don't live in Hollywood. I didn't raise my kids in Hollywood. I have very few friends who are actors, quite frankly. I have a lot of friends who are just regular people. Not to say that actors aren't regular people, but you know what I'm saying. Um, so I, I think that, that I've kept myself as, as honest and, and authentic as I can be and not succumb to the trappings of this industry. And I think that that's given me a great longevity. I've also learned diversity. You know, I've diversified myself from in front of the camera to in front of the mic to um, many different things. I've, I've gone from a teenager. I started at 17. I'm 61 years old. I've understood my transitions. I didn't stand on ceremony. I didn't say, no, I have to be this. I have to be that. I've accepted the characters and the roles as they'd come. As long as it wasn't going to kill my soul and I was going to work with good people, maybe make a buck, um, I'm your guy. And, uh, and that's made for a very long and fruitful career. So, Phil, what is the best thing about being a part of the Star Trek universe? Interviews like this. Oh, you. <laughs> you, you, you no, you're remembered. You're remembered. You're remembered. You're, you're, you're taken into a fold that is deep and abiding. I mean, these fans, they love them Star Trek, man. They love their Star Trek. And they love the people that have uh, been a part of that, that love affair with them. And um, it's very unique, and it's very special, and um, and again, I honor it. I mean, it's it's a part of the, uh, you know, I, I got a badge of honor that I wear as a result of being in so many of these amazing shows, and um, I'm very respectful, very respectful. Well, Phil, thank you so much for chatting with us today, dropping so much knowledge and so many great, great stories about your entire career, and of course, your time in Star Trek. Uh, and, you know, again, folks, I recommend that uh, you guys watch these episodes again if you don't. You know, I say it every week, but these in particular are, are very, very much worth watching. So, Phil, thank you so much today for everything. It's been a real pleasure to talk to you. It was my honor, truly. Thank you so much. That was our discussion with Phil Morris, who I'm so happy to say he's one of us. He's such a down-to-earth guy. I can't say thank you enough for chatting with us today. And one of these days, I really got to see that comic book collection in person because, wow, that just sounds tremendous. 
And it's also got me speculating what character he could be doing next if he's going to be rummaging through his comic collection to get some inspiration. So, Phil, when that appearance happens, I hope you'll let us all know. The episode, Looking for Parmok in All the Wrong Places, is basically a Star Trek version of the story of Cyrano de Bergerac, with Worf being Cyrano and Quark being Christian, and Grilka as Roxanne. The concept for the episode was thought up by Michael Dorn, but that very long title certainly wasn't his idea. Even Terry Farrell has balked at the name of this episode, which was in fact a reference to that famous country song, Looking for Love by Johnny Lee, back in 1980. This episode has the distinction of also having the third longest name in Star Trek history, with second place going to Star Trek Discovery's The Butcher's Knife Cares Not for the Lamb's Cry, and the original series taking the first place honors with For the World is Hollow and I Have Touched the Sky. Oof, that was a mouthful of words to say. And if you'd like to follow Phil Morris on social media, go ahead and check out the show notes for this week's episode. We've got all those links right there for you. Thank you again for listening to this week's episode of Trek Untold. Please make sure you follow us on social media to see all of our memes and daily guest updates. And who knows what else, because you never know what pops up on our pages. All you have to do is look for Trek Untold on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. We'd love to hear from you and hear what you think about this week's episode. If you'd like to support this podcast, check out patreon.com slash trekuntold to learn how you can keep our ship operating at full power. You can also check out some of our merchandise at teespring.com slash stores slash trekuntold. That's T-E-E spring.com. That includes shirts, stickers, mugs, phone cases, and a whole lot more. But most importantly, if you haven't already, please subscribe to this show and give us a review and rating on iTunes or wherever you listen to it. If you enjoy what we do here every week on this show, please give us a five-star rating and review. It's the best way to make new listeners discover this podcast and help us grow. Once again, I'd like to thank our sponsor, Triple Fiction Productions. And shout out to Scott Ray for setting up this interview. If you'd like to book this week's guest for a convention appearance or an autograph signing event, email Scott at scottray67 at aol.com. If you'd like to send us some feedback, suggest a guest, would like to be booked on the show, or are interested in sponsoring us, email me at trekuntold at gmail.com. Once again, this has been Trek Untold. I'm Matthew Kaplowitz, and until next time, fortune favors the bold. <laughs>